The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. It's great to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Um, the scripture reading this morning is from Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, to, be Christ. to Christ. Thank you very much, Olivia. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. Those of us who are joining via Zoom, as well as those out in the breezeway, uh, my name is Paul Lim. I serve here. I've uh, been here since 2016 as a scholar in residence, and also during uh, the weekdays, I serve as a professor at Vanderbilt University, um, as a professor in the Departments of Religious Studies and also in the Divinity School. So um, let's uh, pray as we uh, look to God for his word and for our uh, own edification. Gracious God, we pray that you'll open up our ears and our hearts to listen to what you have to say, that we will be transformed as your people as we struggle with our various fears, help us to forge ahead with faith and by looking unto you, the author and perfecter of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen, <clears throat> amen. Okay, so every three semesters or so, I teach at uh, Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. Uh, and one of the delights that I have about teaching there is to learn a lot from my um, brothers and sisters who go there. So it's uh, insiders, meaning those who are inmates, as well as outsiders, meaning myself and a group of Vanderbilt students. And uh, one time I was, uh, one of the classes I often teach there is called uh, God and Human Suffering in Christian Traditions. And I began one class with this question, does, my, does life make sense? Does life make sense? And I got three different kinds of answers. I'm predictable in some ways. Some said life makes sense. Others said life does not make sense. But then one that stayed with me for quite a while and has stayed since is someone said life almost makes sense. Life almost makes sense. 
And it was shared by everybody is that, yeah, that actually sounds right in many ways. Life makes sense in some ways, and in other times it doesn't make sense. So many had concluded it almost makes sense. I don't know where you are when, if I were to ask you that question, does life make sense? Some of you might, might say, of course it does, Paul. I mean, as a Christian, life makes complete sense. And others will say, yeah, I don't know about that. And others will resoundingly say, it almost makes sense. Now, why might that third option be something that resonates with me? I mean, I think in some ways I would say, yeah, it almost makes sense because of the thing called fall, that we, things don't always happen the way we intend to. Good people do not always finish first. Bad people may actually finish first. And this is a, a something that is actually quite biblical. In Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph, he says that, you know, life was really perplexing to him. All the, you know, the injustice, injustice of the world and inversions thereof. He says, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I began to understand their destiny. So something about coming into this covenant renewal called worship does help our own kind of um, ethical and epistemological bearings, meaning like we kind of realize, okay, by coming into this place called a sanctuary for this activity called worship, I get to understand who I am and also whose I am. And so life begins to make a little bit more sense, a little bit more sense, and yet I am often finding myself as one who will say life almost makes sense. Why is that? Because I think well, one of the things is because of this thing called fear. Fear. Presence of fear will prevent oftentimes clarity. Presence of fear will promote cloudy vision and confusion of interpretation of life's events and significance. In other words, because of the superabundance of fear within and without, life does not always make sense. So the statement, it almost makes sense. Think with me about the word fear today as we go on, because I think in this text that we have just read, there is a lot of fear. And then how the early Christian community faced their fears in the way that actually brought joy to them, as well as right way to interpret and journey forward in their life. But I don't know about you, but almost all of my life, indeed, I would dare say, indeed, our lives, we have learned that we spend, a so long as we spend a lot of time, talent, and treasure to acquire that elusive peace of mind or buy that security and safety and prosperity, we will be okay because in so doing, we will be able to seal off this kind of nearly everywhere thing called fear and insecurity. Some of you may remember this bank from New York called Bankers Trust. So trust is a very big word in the banking industry, or you might remember the Guggenheim Securities or Prudential Securities, TD Securities. Nothing against financial services at all. I have friends who are in them and family members as well, but in fact, let's face it, I think we all have that kind of notion that so long as I can purchase certain peace of mind, I will be okay. It could be a property, it could be certain numbers of stocks, and we feel that in our life, we need to do everything we can for my family and for my children and for my loved ones to be able to provide for that. And, and there, there's nothing wrong whatsoever with it. Yet at the same time, sometimes I do wonder, human nature being what it is, when we have so much human securities and other fences that we build around us to ensure that there is no stranger danger and to make sure that our dogs don't run off into the streets, we inadvertently and unintentionally end up creating an alternative life system that excludes God as the object of our trust, 
24-7. God might be an additional or emergency security and trust, but not every waking moment. Such is my struggle, and I'm assuming that it might be a struggle for some of us in the room as well. Let me illustrate it this way. So I love going overseas to, to different institutions and countries uh, because in so doing, I learn so much more about God, who God is, and what God is up to in, in, in ways that I can't sometimes see when I'm living in my relative comfort and security of life here in the United States. So this story takes place in Kenya, a country I love to go. Been there about three times, and this is most recent trip. So we were, my colleague and I were taken to a remote village near the Maasai land area. And um, so we were taken to a school and the school principal, uh, you know, I was kind of embarrassed, but like he had all the children line up and they sang a song um, and like, welcoming us to their school. And the song went something like this. Lord, you give us pencils and crayons. Lord, you sweeten our tea. Lord, you give us power, etc. So, not etc., but you know, the two things kind of stuck with me in particular about the song. One, how beautifully they sang that song. Two, how peculiar or odd the phrasing was to me. And this is what was odd to me, at least. I asked the principal because of the sort of oddity of some of the words that I heard, and I asked him, how and why do they sing, Lord, you give us pencils and crayons, and Lord, you sweeten our tea? Don't we do that ourselves? I mean, I just, especially those words, you sweeten our tea, because I was thinking, like, when I sweeten my coffee, does God do that? It was actually a question or statement about God's providential care and commitment to all things seen and unseen. Creatures small and not so small, young and not so young. His answer to my question is unforgettable. He said, Mr. Lim, in America, where you come from, everything works and you have everything. Here in this part of Kenya, almost nothing works until God shows up and God works. I hear you say that God is the invisible hand that works, but it seems in America, God is no longer visible. And whereas here in Kenya, God is just about the only one we can really trust. I was completely dumbfounded when I heard that. Now, you know what I mean when I told you that I learned so much more about going overseas to learn about God from my sisters and brothers than what tiny bit of instruction that I can impart to them. My fear. So these children as we're singing, you know, God, you sweeten our tea and you give us pencils and crayons. They were utterly, utterly innocent in their statement about the fact that God is a giver of everything, that God is behind every action, and God is the guarantor of our life and security and both here and life to come. And yet I found myself in that assembly line as well as flight back home in many years since, struggling with that. Does God really sweeten my tea? Yes, he does. And yet I have questions. I think my own fear about life and so on is based on faulty knowledge, faulty knowledge about self, faulty knowledge about salvation, faulty knowledge about society, and faulty knowledge about Savior. So self, who am I? So salvation, what am I saved for? Society, what am I to do in the interim before I enter into glory, or before I die? Savior, who is this God from whom all things come and to whom all things return? So for the rest of our time, what we will do is we'll unpack these things in the following three points. One, it'll be about the context of fear, context of fear. 
Second will be contest of fears, contest of fears. And three, it'll be conquest of fear. So context, contest, and conquest. Then let's go to the first point, context of fear situated. Let me start with a statement, and that's a very simple one and one that would be worthy of consideration. Peter and John were afraid. You might say, no, they were not afraid. They were like the apostles, and they could not have been afraid. No, no, they were afraid. We'll see what I mean by that. The early church community, they, were, they had human fears, and it's okay to have human fears. What we do with them is what makes the difference. And you might say, how do you know that? I'm glad you asked. Let me show you in verse 29. What do they say? They are praying to God, and they say, now, Lord, consider their threats. It's a real thing. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Did you hear those words? Great boldness. That means that they were afraid. They were asking God because they knew that God is the only one who could solve their problem of fear. The, the fear, the Greek word is phobos. That means from which we get the word phobia, agoraphobia, claustrophobia, and xenophobia. You get the word, and phobia means deeply unseating feeling of kind of, you know, lack of safety. In other words, our context and situation is such that humanly speaking, they were bound to be fearful and timid. So they were asking God, Lord, Consider their threats and enable us. We don't have great boldness that will come out rather naturally, so they had to ask God in the same way that we do as well. So in terms of context of fear, take a look at verses 23 and 27. Here, they were praying, and they, because on their release, Peter and John, so they were actually hearing these words, and the chief priests and the elders basically said, you know what, don't mess with us. Listen to us and do it. Okay, so uh, and verse 27 also similarly speak about that. So the unprecedented event of Peter and John raising the man who had been crippled all his life, about which we heard from Scott a couple of weeks ago, has caused quite a stir. They, Peter and John said, gold and silver we have none, but what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And then something that is not supposed to happen happened. Unprecedented event, thus is a miracle, and so it caused consternation, it caused delight, and stirred up controversy all at the same time because the man was 40 years old and above. It says in verse 22 of today's chapter that he was 40 years old, meaning this, that he was actually a full-on adult, and, and as a 40-year-old person, you're not supposed to be able to get up and walk by miracle, and this is what happened. So it also had to do with the attribution and source for the power of healing. Not only was this person, a 40-year-old person, unlikely candidate for receiving this miracle because of the age, but the other thing that was also a cause of consternation and controversy was the fact that this Jesus had been crucified not long ago, and then there is commotion and rumor that he's been raised to life. And really, around this time period, majority of Israel, Jerusalem population had not actually bowed their knees or decided to follow Jesus. And so minority people group were saying this. So it, well, we know that Jesus was controversial, non-conforming leader of a relatively unimpressive bunch of followers, let's be honest. And it was precisely these strangers and weirdos and losers who began to stir things up. The context of their fear is like everywhere else, human institution and individuals. Let's not kid ourselves. Peter and John were relative nobodies as far as the Jewish and Roman institutional power brokers and stakeholders are concerned. 
And so they basically called him to their presence and said, Stop it, shut up, and shove it, and go home. Shut up and stop talking about Jesus. I mean, what, what is this thing? This is not good. You think that's nothing? To be called into the presence of the chief priests and the elders and to be told, stop doing that? If you think that's nothing, consider with me. Imagine those of you in the middle school or even elementary school um, age uh, children. Let's say you're told that you should come to the principal's office immediately. All right, what are you thinking, friends? Are you thinking, yeah, great thing is going to happen. You're being called to the principal's office. Are you thinking, oh, crud, what have I done? I don't know about you, but if I'm back in the high school days, or I mean, I'm glad n none of that happened when I was, you know, uh, other bad things happened, but not that one. But being called into the principal's office is never a fun thing. For those of you working, you know, moms and dads and those younger and older, think of yourself being called by your boss to come to her or his office right now. Are you thinking a big promotion or a big, you know, a salary raise? Or are you thinking, holy freak, what have I done now? If you're a pastor, right, and you're told that there will be a special presbytery meeting to talk about you, are you thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to become the new whatever? Or are you thinking, oh, no, I'm thinking the latter? If, let's say you're Martin Luther and you're someone to a specially appointed imperial meeting at the city of Worms. Are you thinking, hooray, things are looking up for me because I'm going to meet Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, none of which was true. It wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, it wasn't actually an emperor, but you get the point. Martin Luther was deathly afraid. He was thinking, oh man, I'm going to be excommunicated. I may actually end up dead. I want you to think about the context of fear. When Peter and John were in the presence of these, they spoke their words with power and fervor, but you cannot tell me that they were not afraid. Because their prayer clearly speaks that. They're saying, Lord, allow us, enable us, because, see, they're saying, enable us. We cannot do it ourselves. You have to enable us to speak your word with great boldness, because we ain't got no great boldness ourselves. It cannot be generated from within. It has to come from without. There has been external agency that will invoke us to be bold and to be unafraid. Look at verse 27 as part of their prayer. The early church community rightly recognized their context of fear. It says in verse 27, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. So Herod Antipas, not to be confused with Herod the Great who was Herod's father, Herod Antipas stood for the political power of the Jewish people who were serving as an outpost or colony of the powerful Roman Empire. And it says that Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate met to conspire against Jesus before he was crucified. There is a collusion of two powers, speak of collusion of two powers that had not always gotten along previously. But here is a very revealing text in Luke chapter 23, verses 11 and 12. It says, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked Jesus Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And watch this in verse 12. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So something about, you know, surrounding the event of Jesus, they became actually best friends. Their conspiracy to get rid of a minor nuisance named Jesus of Nazareth led the former enemies to become the new BFFs. Now that they had joined forces, it was no wonder that the early church had fears seizing them, thereby leading them to identify the context of their fears and bringing them to God. That leads me to my second point. That is, contest of fears. Contest of fears. The early church community rightly interpreted the immediate context of their fears. 
Yet they also knew how to situate their immediately, uh, immediate context over against the larger context of fears colliding. That's the second point, which is contest of fears. Notice with me in verses 25 and 26. They are praying, and this is why do they, and they actually quote a psalm, which is a messianic psalm, Psalm 2. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. So this is a messianic psalm directed at uh, Gentile rulers and, and kings and queens and their powers, and they're conspiring up against God. See, the early church kind of saw that they were actually part of this kind of cosmic and international contest of fears. This is what I'm saying. The, the rulers and, and kings and queens of other nations, they were afraid of God. Not afraid as in like we're afraid that we're going to be like scared. No, they were afraid of letting go of their control. They had their own empires, they had their own destinies, they had their own regimes, and they didn't want to let go. Now, you might think that that's really terrible of them. No, how about you and me? Are we so willing to let go of our own controls, of our own destinies, of our own regimes, of our own empires? Because who is this God that they were conspiring against and many nations and rulers fighting or were fighting against? This God is the one who is described in our text that we have just read in the five ways. God is one who creates. It says in verse 24, it says, you know what? Uh, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God is the one who creates everything, and also God is the one who reveals. In verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. So God is not only one who creates, but God is the one who reveals, and also God is the one who acts in history. God is actually involved in the psalm that is quoted here. The nations are raging against and conspiring against God and God's anointed, and yet God is not silent. God will actually act. Fourthly, God is the one who enables. Their prayer tells us that. They're praying, Lord, enable us to speak with great boldness. God is the one, as we'll see, who will enable, and also God is the one who listens. In verse 31, their, their place that they were was shaken up so physically that they will become unshakable. It says, after they pray, these great things happen. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. In response to their prayer, God hears and acts. So back to the second point, contest of fears. What were these kings and nations afraid of as they were quoted here in, in our text? They don't want God to be God. They want to be their own gods. They want to be their own goddesses themselves. Let me say that again. I think at the core of their fear was they didn't want God to be God. They didn't want this God of Israel. Like They don't even have respect for this nation called Israel. And why should that, that God of Israel be my God? I'm not, I'm not an Israelite. And, and, that, and, and especially if I have to surrender my lordship, surrender my control, surrender my own sovereignty, surrender my personal agency to this God that I don't even know, I'm certainly not going to do that. Well, isn't that exactly my problem, I ask? Isn't that exactly your problem and our problem? The contest of fears. We're really afraid that if I let go of all my shots and, and let God call all my shots and control my life journey, that I'm going to end up living a life that is really different from what I envisioned? Isn't that what I'm afraid of? I became a Christian as a junior in college. 
and as many people that told me about Jesus and so on and so forth, the, the biggest fear I had was, wait a minute, if I become a Christian, then I cannot call all the shots. I'm going to have to live differently. I'm going to have to follow someone else's rule book. Someone else has a playbook that's apparently better than mine, and I cannot call all my shots. That was, I mean, no joke. That was the biggest fear I had about becoming a Christian. There's a story that I read as a small child. It's an Indian uh, folk tale about a monkey king, and the tribes of monkeys were battling it out. And there were the, the good tribe were saying, hey, surrender to this merciful king who is a conquering king because he will always lead with mercy and not justice. And the opposing side, how do you know that? And then they answered, he will always be the one who will lay down his own body to make the bridge because you had to, as these two tribes are fighting and they used the bridge, but the bridge fell. So they had to kind of, to make the peace treaty, they had to make the human, well, not human, monkey bridge. And the last kind of missing link was going to be occupied by the king himself, the monkey king. But then one monkey from the, the different side, the enemy tribe, stepped on and he said, I'm not going to believe, I don't believe this. This king is a you know, wicked king and I'm going to find out. And he said, I'm going to actually step on the, the monkey's kind of body so hard. And then that's what happened. The, the monkey, the, this wicked monkey stepped on this peaceful monkey king's kind of body so hard that his heart burst. And as he was dying, he, in his, even in his dying moments, wanted to make sure and indeed waited until everyone crossed to the other side to make the peace treaty a real thing. And when I, was, when I, you know, when I first read that story many, many years ago, I wasn't a Christian, but something kind of stayed with me. The moral of the story was about this kind of battle, this contest of fears. This monkey was really afraid of this other monkey king, and he wasn't going to let that monkey king be his king. So I'm going to have to kill this king so that I will have my fears subsided. Don't we do that? Don't I do that? Contest of fears. Let's move to the third and the final point, which is conquest of fears. Conquest of fears. So friends, what are you really afraid of? Uh, do we want God as our own insurance policy, but not really any more than that? They prayed, give us great boldness. But for what? What is that boldness for? Notice they didn't pray, you know, consider their threats and kill them all. Wipe them out. They didn't pray for that. Nor did they pray, Lord, change our circumstances so much so that we don't have this kind of pers you know, persecutory practices and policies enacted against us. They didn't pray for that. They prayed for something like this. They prayed that they will have their own internal change of heart, moving from fear to fortitude, fear to faith, fear to courage, fear to boldness. They said, please give us the, the, the courage to speak, the boldness to live your word, to follow your leanings and leadings wherever they may be. So back in this first century context, as we invariably tend to read the Bible through 21st century American lenses, and that's who we are and where we are, and that's okay. But one thing we have to be mindful of every time we read the scriptures is to really try to situate ourselves in this context. In our case today, it is first century Jerusalem. These new followers of Christ, they are now really empowered and emboldened to do the things that they never thought that they could do or would do. To live your life by following this crucified one whose resurrection had created an alternative religious system was going to be in some ways really a scary thing. 
But you know what was the most distinctive feature of Christianity compared to all other religious systems in the Greco-Roman context of the day? What do you think was really distinctive about Christianity among all other pantheons of gods and goddesses? The most distinctive thing about Christianity in the first century and today as well is this conviction held by the followers of Jesus that through Jesus, they're able to experience God as the one who loves. God, who when God looks at you, isn't being judgmental and saying, you're disqualified, you're out of bounds, you're out. No, God says, I had you even before you were created. I had you at Jesus. You know, like, you know, what's that? When Harry, I forgot the movie. It's, uh, you had me at hello. I think that's the, Jerry Maguire, that's it. Now, you know, it's almost Jesus is saying, no, no, you had me at Jesus. Like, I had you. Like, you were already beloved before you were created, before any of your days ever came to be. Because when we think of God, I don't know about you, but many of us think that God must be angry at me. Okay, God may say, I love you, but like, God, really, deep down, God is dissatisfied with me. But here, it says, no, no, no. You see, the early Christians were convinced that they experienced something tremendous and, and earth-shaking about their relationship with God, that God, basically through the mediator called Jesus, they were able to enter into a new relationship with God, new understanding of God, new experience of God and life because of the love of God that was shed abroad their hearts through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Professor Larry Hurtado from the University of Edinburgh, who recently passed away, was one of my favorite New Testament scholars and actually sort of an intellectual hero of mine. Sometimes assigned his works to my classes. And he said in this book called The Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World, said the emphasis of God's love, he says, comprised something entirely distinctive. We simply do not know of any other Roman era religious group in which love of God played this important role in discourse or ethical teaching, end quote. Why should you not be afraid? It is because the holy servant Jesus, who was a conduit of conveying God's love and embodying God's love, faced up his own fears. Jesus was fully human and fully divine, and in his humanity, he faced up his own fears. When he was at the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, Father, may this cup, if it is possible at all, pass from me, and yet not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus, his soul was shaken up and his body was torn up, and it was through the death of this servant of God named Jesus that the early Christian followers, they could have any hope of conquering their worst fears, fear of death, fear of loss, fear of insignificance, fear of nothingness, whatever your, fami whatever your fears may be, whatever my fears are. In Hebrews chapter 13, another early Christian text, chapter 13, which is a text that has, I think, tremendous contemporary resonance, especially at a church like ours, relatively well-to-do. The writer of Hebrews says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You see, for the early Christians, as it is perhaps for us today, to be free from the love of money was going to create some anxiety and fear. That's why the writer quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 31, 6, where God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Therefore, fear not. So the writer continues, thus we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What can my life do to me? What can it do to me? What can mere mortals, what can they do to me? And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we have fear everywhere. 
But as Luther said, I fear God so much that I fear nobody else. But let's go one step further. Perfect love drives out fear. So let me finish uh, with a poem written by a 17th century English uh, poet, a literary figure named John Donne, D-O-N-N-E. It's a poet, a poem called Hymn to God the Father. It's one of the poems that resonates so deeply with me in my own life journey, and I hope it is with you as well. And if you have never seen this poem, I hope you enjoy it. Wilt thou forgive the sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before, which is talking about original sin. Wilt thou forgive the sin through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore. When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. So I have a problem of sin, of original sin, and also actual sin. So he's got a double bind here. Second stanza says, Wilt thou forgive the sin which I have won others to sin and made my sin their door? That's, I'm an enabler of other people falling and failing. Wilt thou forgive the sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. That means, okay, the, the, the writer says, I have a real problem because I have sinned before I was born, and I have sinned since I was born. Not only do I sin myself, but I enable others to sin, so I got a real problem because when I die, I know I'm going to fall short. Now let's look at this final stanza. I have a sin of what? Fear. That when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. Notice what it says. It says, I have a sin of fear. It's a sin to be afraid because if I really understand God, I really understand myself, then I should be able to move beyond that. So he writes, but swear by thyself that at my death thy son shall shine as he shines now and heretofore, and having done that thou hast done, I fear no more. I love that ending. When you have done that, reminding me of the real presence of Jesus, that as Jesus is really present among us through the power of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus is really present among us in, as we participate and proclaim the Lord's death and his coming again in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, in the ordinances, that we remember that. And knowing that, we say, we fear no more. May the Lord bring all of us to a point of fear no more and asking God and being satisfied with the fact that God enables us to live with great boldness as we struggle toward joyfully to the eternal city of God. Let's pray together. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we thank you, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In your glorious triune existence, you have designed all things to come to pass according to your wonderful plan. Life makes sense sometimes and doesn't make sense sometimes if we're really honest. And so we come to your table knowing that this is a table where all things will be explained to us. As the Samaritan woman said, when the Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us. And as Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Lord, we come to you knowing that you will explain our life's mystery, our life's confusions, all the struggles that we have, all the stories that do not add up. We come to the broken body of Jesus and spilled blood of Jesus, knowing that in that brokenness we find wholeness. In that death we find our, our new life. In that death proclaim we hear the proclamation of eternal life. So as we come to you, may we do so with joy and humility, knowing that our qualification is that you qualified for us, that you were afraid for our own sake. You conquer fear, death, and sin, and Satan, so that we may fear no more. Thank you in your name. Amen.